0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, we have ten questions today and they're all very good as per usual. Um, but I just want to check in. How are you doing? How's your day going? Are you taking care of yourself? I know for a lot of people this time is just it's just difficult. And the weather, at least where we are, we're up in Washington State, it's been pretty dreary lately, and you definitely feel it. Like I'm tired at like 10 o'clock. I'm like, is it one in the morning? I feel very tired. Um, but if you follow me on Instagram, you know, I was talking about how I hurt myself sleeping somehow. Like I had, my neck was super, super sore, but my mom has this like massager thing that I've been using and it makes a world of difference. So I think I'm going to purchase myself one because it's, oh, when you're in pain for any of you who've had pain or chronic pain, I don't know. I mean, hats off to you because it's like having that sharp pain for two days was just a killer. Um, so anyway, I'm doing okay. We're just up here doing our thing. And honestly, kind of enjoying a little bit of the rain, but let's get into your questions. Question number one says, Hey Katie, I wanted to ask for tips on building up emotional resilience and knowing when to self-care and when to push yourself to be productive. Last month, I had something happen with my roommate, which triggered me and caused me to have a panic attack in the park and nearly throw up. TMI, I know. And ever since I've been feeling depressed or burnt out with anxiety, not sure which. And I really want to get back into my everyday routine and working on projects. I'm mentally not feeling sad, but my body feels tired, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. With more frequent panic attacks and struggling to eat, I should be moving out so uh, soon, so hoping to, or uh, wait, I should be moving out soon, so hoping a better environment will also help me with this as I won't be around the thing that caused it. Thanks." So this is a great question. Um, going back to the top, the main question is tips on building up emotional resilience and knowing when to kind of take care of yourself versus when to push yourself, right? And that it's going to be different from person to person. But the the building up emotional resilience, for those of you who don't know what resilience is, it's really our ability to kind of weather life's storms. So if I have a lot of resilience, even if life gives me a ton of lemons, right, it's just shitting all over me and I'm having a horrible time, I'm able to be okay and manage because i have that that built up self-care or coping skills or support system or all of the above all of those things could be considered me building up my resilience does that make sense i hope so so the tips for building that up are honestly Doing things that make us feel good, making sure we're taking regular breaks, making sure we have the right support, whether that be professional support like a a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist or group therapy, whatever, as well as like peer support from friends and family and things like that. And also taking care of those basic needs. So, you know, I talk all the time about um, HALT, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are just some of our basic needs that we need to make sure we're taken care of as well as I would add in showering regularly, taking our, our prescribed medication um, when we're supposed to be taking it and all of that stuff. Because if we do all those basic things, we will have the energy and the wherewithal to manage, let's say, you know, um, someone being rude to us at work or on the road or, you know. Um, feeling like we got ripped off for something there's a ton of different things right in life that can go wrong or having a fight with someone that we love all of that is going to happen because that's life but we need to be able to have all those other things built up and taking care of those basic needs so that we can handle it okay and so doing those things is how we build it up and Um, For a lot of people, they find journaling to be really helpful as well, using impulse logs. There's a lot of things I've talked about over the years. Honestly, any of my videos where I talk about different tools and ways that we can change, let's say, better manage our depressive uh, symptoms or anxiety or eating disorder urges, self-injury, any of that, I always offer these tips and tools. And each of those tips and tools are ways we build up resilience. I know we talk about it like it's a coping skill or, you know, a therapeutic technique, but really all of those things just help us uh, become better able to manage what life throws at us. Gotcha. Got it. Okay, cool. Moving on to the next part of the question where they ask about how to know when you need to self-care versus when to push yourself to be more productive. I... It's going to be a lot of trial and error there's no like hard and fast rule when it comes to this but something that I personally will try to I don't know I guess it's like the way that I listen to my body and know when I should be pushing myself or when I should just be doing something to take care of myself the main thing is if I'm tired I have I check in and I try to discern whether that tiredness is because I'm physically tired or emotionally tired um and honestly both are reasonable reasons for me to take a break. And I will t- plan in a break and take do some of that self-care and then try to push myself. So it's not all or nothing. It's not like a self-care day or a productive day. I try to balance them so that it's a little bit of both so that I can continue working for longer. Does, does that make sense? So it's it's not, I don't want any of us to get caught in this black and white. I'm either doing all self-care or all productivity I honestly believe life works best when there's a little bit of a balance. And so, for instance, today, like last night, I didn't sleep very well because I had this panel I was supposed to be on today and they'd recorded it last night and I was waiting to hear if they liked how it turned out. I know way too much information. But either way, I didn't sleep very well because I knew I had to get up early and check that to make sure. And then, if they needed me to redo some of my answers, I had to get ready and go into town to film it at the place that has high-speed internet so all of that kept me up and not sleeping well so today guess what instead of doing all the things i normally would do i've cut some of those things off of it and i'm going to take a nap because i'm just tired and i know that and so part of it is going to be the discovery of yourself and like recognizing when you are too tired and then taking those breaks tapping back in trying again to do something that's quote-unquote productive by the way, self-care is productive, but doing something that we would call like, like working, right? Whether it's schoolwork or work at work, um, you know, doing some of that and then checking back in. How am I doing? Am I able to do like two hours of solid work or 45 minutes and then I need to take another break? What is it? And we'll have to try. And we're kind of, in a way it's like, Walking out to the edge of a property and waiting to see if you run into an invisible fence, right? Because that fence would be our our ability to cope with that or do that thing, the energy we have. And so every day it's going to be a different. That, that invisible fence is going to be a different place, and we're just walking up and seeing. Oh, oh, I hit it today here. Okay, take a break. Okay, walk out a little bit farther. Okay, well this time today I went a little bit farther, but there it is. And it's it's just push and pull. It's just it's just trial and error, and. The, the tricky part is, number one, keeping it out of that black and white, all or nothing, either I'm being productive or I'm a lazy slob doing, you know, self-care, because a lot of us have judgment about self-care, which rolls into the second part, which is that judgment around it. Because the most important part as we build resilience and our ability to kind of come back from things that have happened is really to withhold, meaning don't judge ourselves allow ourselves to to kind of figure it out, know that every day is going to be different because of all sorts of factors, food we ate, how well we slept, what other things are going on in our life when we last had a panic attack, et cetera. Um, all of that is going to affect us. And so just being patient and non-judgmental as we try that out will be key, okay? Okay, let's move into question number two. Let me get a little water here. And that question is, Hi, Katie. I was wondering if you could explain why talking about past childhood trauma makes me feel so much worse. I also wonder why I feel worse now than I did when the trauma happened. And if you hear a little jingle jangle, it's my mom's dog. She's got her her collar on. I forgot to take it off. Um, anyway, says, uh, why I talk about past childhood trauma makes me feel so much worse. And I also wonder why I feel worse now than I did when the trauma happened. I started talking about a sexual abuse three weeks ago, and I just keep feeling worse and worse as time goes on. And I remember other traumas that happened. I find myself getting more agitated and moody, and I feel so guilty about it. Oh, that guilt, right? Turns into shame and embarrassment. It's a whole spiral. Okay, so the reason that talking about past childhood trauma makes us feel worse is that, it, and also I just want to the caveat that it feels worse at the beginning and then better as we process through. So let me explain. A lot of times when we have something traumatic happens, let's say that we were abused as a child, or we were in an accident, or maybe we saw someone in our life pass away. I had a friend in high school that um, walked in on his brother after he had taken his own life, and that was super traumatizing, right? And so we can have these events that happen in our life, and at the time, it's too much to process. A lot of times you guys will tell me we dissociate, right? It's like our brain pulls that rip cord. Oh, I'm out of here. And it like emotionally de- detaches us from what's happening so that we can move through it and not have, you know, not be a complete emotional mess. That's why a lot of people when they're in, they call it being in shock, right? During a traumatic situation, we'll say something like uh, to the police, they'll be like, I. they're talking really calmly. They're like, so I just walked in, and they're kind of spaced out and then and then I saw him in the doorway and then I, I dove and somehow I didn't get hit you know and they're just talking about it in as much detail as possible you know they can but they're kind of spaced out and not really with it and that's because we're dissociated and we're we're you know in that state of of panic or overwhelm and when that happens to us our brain in order to help us move through it dissociates or stuffs it down meaning it kind of hides the memory from us and doesn't put it into what we call like a narrative form or a story. So if you don't know, I've talked about memory being stored like that, that uh, Pixar movie Inside Out. They do a wonderful job representing it where they turn every day into these marbles, right? And they roll up these memories into a nice, neat glass marble where we can tell the story from beginning to end, you know, like I could recall a couple of days ago and tell you pretty much what happened that day. I won't remember everything and as as, you know we track back and back farther it'll be harder for me to recall so many details but by and large I can tell you the story of chunks of time in my life however traumas are so overwhelming that we can't actually put them into that marble right we don't we can't make sense of it because honestly it can seem nonsensical I don't know why this happened I don't remember I don't I can't explain why this person did that or I did this right I feel very jumbled and so it's like in the process of making that marble, it's like someone bumps us and we drop the marble and it shatters on the floor of our brain and it isn't processed properly. So when we're doing this past, this childhood trauma work or just trauma work in general, it's like our therapist is helping us pick up a broom and sweep up all of those little splinters and working with us to put them back together. Now, when we do that, we are recalling painful information, right? We're recalling a really shitty time, a thing that was super hurtful or overwhelming to our system. And we're looking at it little bit by little bit and trying to glue it together. And those glass shards are going to cut us. They're going to be uncomfortable. We're going to have flashbacks. We're going to feel overwhelmed. All of the things that our brain was kind of holding off for a while so we could move through life and be okay. We're purposefully turning our awareness to it, looking at it and trying to put it together. So that's why when we first start doing this work and we start working on trauma, it's going to feel worse before it feels better. And it's kind of like any kind of recovery. If you've talked to anybody who has been clean and sober or quit smoking, drinking, anything, quit doing anything that wasn't healthy for them, it's really, really hard at the beginning. Like those first few days, uh, so hard. We feel like it are white knuckling, like, ugh. and that's the same with trauma treatment that those first few months maybe first year or two of therapy. It depends on, I don't want any judgment. Everybody's process is different. So there's no certain amount of time. Okay. But as we're working, oh, it's hard. And then we kind of reach this plateau where it's not as hard as it was, but we don't feel great, but it's not bad. And then we kind of slowly move down into ah, recovery land. Where we feel good, we've got our tools. Sure, we have some flashbacks here and there. Things can make us feel bad, but though that is not the norm, usually we feel pretty um, okay and and not so upset by it. It's like it has no emotional charge, is how we talk about it. Like you can say uh, things that remind you of that trauma or be around things that used to be triggering and it doesn't do that for you anymore because you've processed it through and you feel better. And so that's kind of why when we start doing that work, I hope that kind of helps you make sense of why it can feel worse now and that's why it kind of feels worse it can feel worse than when the trauma actually happened because when the trauma happened we're in survival mode our body can go into fight flight freeze and it, it honestly is just getting us through it's not processing it's not coping it's just managing and surviving you know there's a huge difference between surviving and thriving right and we're surviving in that in that time period um and I think Oh and there were some comments below about getting agitated and moody and in this comment she said or in this question um, I find myself getting more agitated and moody and I feel guilty about it. So here's the thing is if we are going back to that first question about building resilience when we're working through traumas we're kind of burning through some of that resilience right and if any of you are doing that trauma work I'm sure you can attest to the fact that taking care of your basic needs sometimes while you're doing that work seems impossible and we can feel very overwhelmed and so of course, is our resilience is we're burning through it. And we're doing this hard work, and we feel like shit. And it's just so stressful. And, and all that resilience we had built up is we're just throwing it at that trauma work. We don't have any for our regular life left anymore. And that means that we can have road rage, right? Someone cuts us off. We're like, fuck you. We want to flip them off. want to honk the horn. We're like, I can't believe it. Where normally we'd be like, ugh whatever, it's not worth it, right? We'd have that resilience, that ability to like, Sigh people they must be in a hurry right we'd have some of that we don't have that when we'd have no leftover resilience and so agitation moodiness super common and often as a therapist it they take it out on us and it's okay it's part of our job we know where it's coming from but i would encourage you to express this to your therapist that you're feeling this way that it is worse you're feeling worse you're feeling really agitated and moody and you're taking it out on them and you feel bad about it and you could apologize you know even though I know your therapist is going to say there's no need for apologies I know where it's coming from but thank you for acknowledging it Um, because I think that that is all helpful and it is possible just FYI that maybe your therapist is making you move through things too fast it's just too fast. We can't do it, right? They might be wanting us to process trauma more quickly than we can. And maybe we feel worse because of that also, or maybe re-traumatized, right? So it's a, a balance in therapy of challenge, but not over challenge. So mentioning that could be helpful. And yeah, I guess that's really it. And the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment that kind of comes along with all that's happening. I really just encourage you to be aware of it and speak up about it in therapy. It's very normal. It's part of our process, unfortunately, but I just want you to know that I I want you to have an opportunity to talk about it, let it see the light of day, because sometimes those things that we feel guilt about or shame about or embarrassment about once we've talked about them in a healthy therapeutic way, we realize it's actually not as bad as we thought or what we said or did, you know, we can understand why it happened. And that gives us a little bit more understanding and less, you know, guilt or shame about it. And so bringing that up, I think will be really healing and just allow you to recognize and understand just how common that is and that your therapist probably understands why. Uh, Because I, I mean, if I got paid extra every time someone was mad or mean to me, I'd be a bajillionaire. So don't don't feel bad about it. Okay. Moving on. Question number three. Says, "Hi, Katie. How do I stop what ifing myself to death? I just love that phrase. What if, what ifing? How do those of us terrified of people get help?" I'd say my anxiety is mostly catastrophic thinking, but everything I'm afraid of keeps actually happening, like my car breaking down, getting stuck in another state due to extreme weather, being run off the road by a cop, being terrorized by other people, and I can't logic myself out of it. I have panic attacks even getting near my front door. I'm even getting to the point where posting questions here, being online at all is so stressful, I probably need to stop. I want to get better. I want to be a functional member of society again, but I don't know how. I posted last week, asking what would happen when going to the hospital, but I don't even know if I can get there. Please, any advice or tips or tools I can use to be functional enough to make that three-hour drive to the hospital will be so appreciated. Thank you. And there was some uh, follow-up question, just one follow-up question in the comments below this. We'll get into that later. But the first part is, how do we stop what ifing ourselves to death? Now, it can be hard, and I've heard this from a lot of people because. Most of the time, I'd say, let's say 70% of the time, what we're worried about isn't going to happen, right? It might even be a greater percentage, but I'm just going to be fair for all you warriors out there and all of us on the anxious spectrum of mental illness is that it most likely won't happen. Um, and that's why some of the, the cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT tools that I've offered in the past are things like play it out to the end, meaning okay, so this is the worst case scenario, what would happen? Play that out. Tell me how that would work and what would take place all the way through. And usually when we play it out, we realize either A, how unlikely it is that that will actually happen or B, that it's not really that bad and we'd be okay, right? But we'll play it out to the end, the worst case, the best case, and then what's the most likely case? And that can help. We can also check our facts, right? We can look at situations, um, you know, like you said, car breaking down, okay, my my fact checking, second guessing, kind of pushing back against that what if and worry thought is how often has this happened? Sure, life isn't perfect and we all have bad situations. Sean and I drove up to Washington and we're stuck in horrible weather in Portland. So the last about two hours of our drive were pretty scary and rough. But you know, in a 16-hour drive, two hours, it really wasn't that bad. And how often has that happened to us? Um, that's the first time. And so I'd be curious, like, okay, your car broke down. How often does that happen? Okay. Um, you got stuck in another state due to extreme weather. Is this the first time that's happened? Is there a possibility that could happen again? Like, be honest. You can think about it. It's okay to ask those questions and be curious about it. I'm curious about it. So think about it. You know, let yourself contemplate how common how frequently these, you know, bad things, these catastrophic events occur. Because what our anxiety and worry thoughts do is they take one example, and they spin it and whip it into a frenzy and apply it to everything. So they're like, okay, you know, these worry thoughts that told us that, um, you know, it wasn't safe to drive on the road, let's say, and our car is not reliable. Okay, we have these worry thoughts, I'm going to break down and break down. Well, 99 times, we didn't break down. But that one time we did, ooh, our brain, if you didn't know, is wired to seek out threat. Well, what's threatening? Mm, not those 99 times that our car worked and we got to and from wherever we needed to get. That one time that it broke down, ooh, that's scary. Hate that. That's a threat. And so our brain focuses on that, it hones in and it's spins it and turns it and thinks about only it. It's the same reason that, you know, I can read a hundred nice comments, but I read one mean comment and I'm I'm like hurt by it, right? It's a threat. And so just recognizing that and actually checking the facts, not if that thing has happened, right? We're not what ifing. We're not saying, oh, it did happen that one time. I'm curious how many other times it didn't. Let's change that perspective from it did happen to how many times did it not? and just pushing back. I think a lot of that fact checking and playing it out. um, And also, even though these shitty things did happen, I always, uh, my therapist used to say this to me all the time. She'd say, well, have you worked through something like this in the past? Did it kill you then? Did it ruin your life then? My answer is always, well, no, it didn't. I guess I was survived. And she's like, yeah, life's got your back, Katie. Relax. Essentially, don't let your worry thoughts run your life, right? Because we do that. I do that sometimes so checking in and it sounds like you kind of know that a little bit like you said I can't logic myself out of it but I'm that's kind of um, a thinking trap when we try to be like super analytical or super logical about something is that if we have one thing that disproves that then we're like oh our whole theory doesn't work and so it kind of l- the logical thinking can also feed into that black and white thinking which is another thinking trap. And so what my my answer without getting too m- m- like I'm already in the weeds but I don't want to stay there too much longer the real answer is in order to stop what ifing yourself to death we're going to have to consider things from the other perspective instead of focusing on the one thing that went wrong I want you to tell me about the things that went right I want you to play things out I want you to check the facts not has this happened before but how many times has this happened and what are what's the likelihood of it happening if we run those odds do some thinking about that see what you come up with I think that you will find challenging those worry thoughts or those what ifs you'll come out feeling a little less stressed, hopefully, right? Fingers crossed. So those that's just some of my ideas about how to manage that. And then the uh the follow-up, okay, well uh want to get better. Oh yeah, and then you know tools that I can use to be functional enough to make it the three hour drive to the hospital will be so appreciated. When we actually I would encourage you before you make that trip and do that thing to start building up to it find some things that calm your system down is that talking to a good friend is that doing that full body shake I've been talking about since COVID hit is it journaling is it listening to calming music is it seeing my therapist or having a phone call with my therapist like what what are things that help you feel better is it wearing a weighted blanket or weighted vest taking a nap hot showers We want to have a bunch of different resources we can do because we want to calm our system down before we then start imagining ourselves going in that on that three hour drive or calling the hospital and setting that up so that they know we're coming, you know, and then maybe getting in our car, driving out like we're going to go on the highway and then coming back, calming down. We have to do those kinds of steps as we build up to the actual scary or stressful thing. Be patient with yourself, but we have to have those resources to calm our system down as we do it. And that's how we'll get through it. Okay, and maybe bringing a support person if you can would be really, really great. Now, there was a follow up question in the comments that said, what if there are minors that want to go to a therapist, but their guardians or parents aren't allowing them? Depending on your state, you can be, I I think the youngest is 12, but you'd have to look into your own state laws and regulations. But I believe in California, you have to be 12 or 13 years of age. And I don't know off the top of my head, you guys, because I don't see children. If, if those, of you know, I see adults in my private practice. Every once in a blue moon, I'll see like a 17 year old or a 16 year old. I think that's the youngest I've seen in my private practice. Um, So you have to be, I think it's 12 or 13. And you have to have a reason for not including your parents. Like key in, you know, case in point for this question is they don't want, they won't allow me to go. So they don't want to participate. Okay. So you have a reason to not include them. Whatever cost is affiliated with the therapy, you're able to afford yourself. You don't have to, you know, steal or, you know, have your parents be involved that way or whatever. So there's that. And then you just have to be able to emotionally engage in therapy, meaning just participate. Are you able to show up and talk about things bugging you and all of that, which I would assume you are. And so even if you are a minor, you can go to therapy without your parental consent. But if a therapist is going to ask you a couple of those questions, make sure everything's okay. Um, Therapy through school can be really great for that. Seeing a counselor or therapist in school, if they offer it, that's an easy way because it's it's usually free. So getting that set up could be great too. If you're in school, I know COVID has put the kibosh on a lot of things, but hopefully those are open um, because I know a lot of people are struggling with domestic violence and child abuse is increased while, you know, while we're stuck in this quarantine slash COVID thing. So I'm hoping schools will open to keep everybody safe in that way. Okay, I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number four. Question four says, hey, Katie, how many therapy sessions are needed to start feeling better? Hmm, good question. I've had 12, one about every two weeks. So far, the only change is getting very nervous before each session and frustrated after and can feel that up to a few days after. The frustration is from not feeling like I'm getting better and not being able to say much in session or feeling like we didn't really get anywhere. Also for context, I've been told that I have social anxiety and depression. I was going to ask about the anxiety because getting really nervous before session could be part of that and having to see someone knowing that you're going to have to talk about the things that are hard. It's just uncomfortable for us and I, I totally understand. Okay, so how many therapy sessions are needed to start feeling better? Now, This isn't, obviously, there's no like direct answer, right? Okay, in six sessions, you'll start feeling better. The truth is, we need to find a therapist who's a good fit. Now, I'm not saying this therapist isn't a good fit for you, because social anxiety can make it hard for anyone to be a good fit for us. And it's kind of like part of us continuing that process and continuing to go, or you'll find your anxiety kind of slowly goes down. However, if you find your anxiety just only building and you feel worse and worse and worse and worse and you just keep going, that's not good either. And that means it may, we may need to find another therapist. Now, if we have social anxiety, therapy is always going to be a little uncomfortable at the beginning, but we should feel in the grand scheme of things, right? Like we get social anxiety all the time. So you're going to know your levels and what that feels like. We should feel at least a little bit better we should start to feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more relaxed than we do in normal life situations like this, where we have to see somebody else, right? Like, maybe we have such bad social anxiety, going to the grocery store is overwhelming. And so we don't like to go and the buildup of going and then when we're there, it's overwhelming and we get and we're like, it's like the relief that it's done. Therapy should not, it might feel like that at the beginning, but it should slowly start feeling less and less bad. And so that's really what we're looking for at this point. When it comes to feeling better in general in therapy, it's going to depend on what we're working on, but I feel that after like a month of sessions, I mean you're going twice a month, so maybe let's say four, I'll say 4 to 8 sessions, we should start to feel some improvement. Now that doesn't mean our problems are going away, and if we're doing trauma work, remember I said it can feel worse before it feels better. Any of that like uh we're if we're a gambling addict or shopping addict or over, you know if we have an eating disorder self-injury that beginning stage is going to be rough but the ther- like the therapist and the therapeutic relationship should offer you some extra support some tools even if we're not able to use them fully we should feel like oh, i have somewhere i can go and talk about this which is a relief we have things that we can do which is a relief that make us feel better right we there's some sense of relief even though we don't feel great and that should happen in after the first couple of months, you know, or like, like I said, six to eight sessions, I feel like we should at least an incremental in uh, like decrease in our symptoms, I guess, is how I should say it. So I hope that gives you some kind of idea. And if we find that therapy is just not making us feel any better, we're not able to open up. I know some people in the comments mentioned how, you know, they just feel frustrated because therapy passes and they haven't even said anything and they haven't even got through anything. And one of them even said their therapist ended the session earlier, than usual because there was nothing to talk about. I I really want to, okay, two things. Number one, the onus is on us as the patient to to talk about what's going on because the therapist can't read our mind, right? And so I've talked about this o- over the years, writing it down and bringing it in and reading from it or asking your therapist, hey, can I email you in between session? You do not have to reply, but I want you to have information for the next session or read it in session with me next session. And see if that can benefit that can you know work, and they'll do that because doing that and kind of getting stuff out when we're calm and at home and not in that stressful situation or anxiety producing situation can be beneficial. It can help us open up a little bit more. And those are just some kind of sneaky ways to help us feel a little bit better. Um, yeah, and it's just tricky. And I know therapists aren't perfect, but a we want to make sure it's a good therapist. I have videos. If you just want to go on YouTube. Uh, Katie Morton good therapist it should come up I think it's like five ways to know you're seeing a good therapist check that video out that'll help you know are these things what's is this is this what's happening um, so look into that and then I think you know uh, doing your work asking your therapist of other ways to get the information out there whether it be email or text or you know uh, bringing something in and reading directly from it all of that's great and then then just being patient with your process, because it does take a little while before we start to feel better. And if you're wanting more homework from your therapist, you can ask for that. Not every therapist automatically jumps to giving homework. I know that that's just my style, but that's not every therapist style. So know that it's completely fine to say, hey, you know, in between session, I'd really love to have something to work on, like an impulse log, or I'd love to some journal prompts or some tools I can try out in my relationships whatever it may be you can ask for that and that will again help us feel better more quickly because we're working not just one day a week or uh this is two what is it one one session about every two weeks so twice a month we can be working more days than that you know just a couple more uh, days a week which would be great um yeah So I hope that that kind of helps. I hope that helps tease it out. I know it's not a direct answer. There's no certain number of of sessions before you start feeling better. But again, going back to making sure it's a therapist that we connect with and we feel okay with, and then really challenging ourselves to find a new way to communicate when we feel like we can't do it in session, we're gonna have to get a little bit creative. And yeah, I hope that helps, but keep me posted, okay? Moving on to question number five says, how can you manage feeling like life is a long series of traumas when your diagnosis is CPTSD or complex PTSD? It has been exhausting recently. I feel like I'm really just floating along between traumas trying to catch my breath. Okay, so, and there were a couple, there was a follow-up question in the comments below this that I'll get into in a second. So how do you manage feeling like life is a long series of traumas when your diagnosis is complex PTSD? In all truth, doing that work in therapy, that trauma work to not only place your traumas into a story form, remember I've talked about narrative and that helps us form healthy memories instead of them being shattered on the floor. But along those lines, trauma timelines can help where we start to try to put them, place them on a timeline of our life and kind of make sense of what happened because it, without doing that work of like the narrative form and the trauma timeline, it can feel like it's all swirled together in like a mess. And it's almost like this ball of yarn that wasn't rolled properly and we can't really untangle it. So doing that work can help us better understand our traumas and at least see them for what they were. And then the huge component of how to not be so exhausted and overwhelmed is again building up those resources so building up some what I call soothing things for our nervous system. I have that whole video I'd encourage you to look on YouTube Katie Morton coping skills it's called 25 coping skills and there's 24 that I offer in the video asking the audience, you, to leave some other good ones in the comments down below. So you'll see in the comments of that video a ton of other ideas. So if you don't like mine, there's a ton of them down in those comments below that video. And I'd really encourage you to click on that video, watch it, and write down some of the things you think might work. Try them out. If they don't work, let's try something else. You can go back to the video, find something else, add it to your list. Cool? So give that a go because along with the, you know, the shaking it out and the going for walks and stretching and showering and journaling and impulse logs and all sorts of things. We're going to need all of that to get us through so we feel okay, so our nervous systems calm down, so we can keep doing the trauma work. And that's the hardest part. That's why it's so exhausting. That's why it feels like we're kind of floating in between traumas almost like we're caught in like a storm in the ocean and we can't really catch our breath. Those resources are like life rafts and they're not like these huge life rafts. Like it's not like we can get into a boat and it'll just take us away. They're more like, I don't know, kind of like those pool noodles, you know, and you may need like three of them to keep you afloat. And if a huge wave hits, you still kind of feel a little underwater. And so we want to gather as many as we can so that we can prop them up under our arms and our head and, you know, some um, under our butt to keep us afloat, under our legs, you know, we want to make sure we've got all those Uh, pool noodles to help you guys know what those are I hope you know what those are imagine them just like I guess another way if you don't know what a pool noodle is is like water wings or something think of your coping skills and resources as water wings and they just kind of keep us above our head above water a little so we can catch our breath then those resources will be really key and then doing the work in therapy will also because we're kind of going through that almost like on the roller coaster where it's like it's building up and it's really hard and it's uncomfortable and we're like oh my god oh my god it's going to peak you know and then we get to that and we kind of plateau for a bit and then we start to feel better so give yourself um you know that extra support and understanding during this this tough time now the follow up question in the comment below this was how do i not live in fear of my abuser and i think part of um part of that is uh, a can we completely distance ourselves and cut ourselves off from that person hopefully so and if we aren't able to you know there are other things we can do but that's always my first recommendation is if someone's been abusive to us and really been hurtful and they don't show any signs of changing or remorse or any of that we don't want them in our lives and they don't deserve to have that relationship we can always come back to it later there's nothing to say that it's like cut and dried and you have to cut them out and you can never go back i'm just saying for your own mental health your own well-being it's probably best that we're not around them and we don't see them anymore and then, I mean, I've, I've had tons of patients over the years get restraining orders from people um, or different things like that to keep them away. And that can help give us some sense of safety. And then, you know, as... Also, it's like checking your facts because some of my patients are scared of their abuser and their abusers passed away. The fear and the trauma that we sustain doesn't go away because of that. and it, I don't want you to think that you can't still fear them even if they actually aren't a threat anymore. That's very common and that's something to work through in therapy. So there's that kind of component. But then there's just the logistical stuff like um, many of you have told me that you've moved. you know, you move apartments if you can. you move apartments, and nobody knows where you live anymore. You don't tell anybody that you know still is in contact with your abuser. and that can be really helpful not letting them know what your phone number is and again, not engaging with it because I don't want them to take any more from you. They've already taken enough. and so, There's that kind of component of the logisticals of it. And then there's really the therapy work. And that's what I've leaned into with a few of my patients over the years, um, whether it's a father or an uncle or a stranger that has hurt them we talk about you know that and some of it can be learning self defense and some of it can just be you know building up our own confidence in our decisions because a lot of times when we've been traumatized we feel like i can't trust my own spidey senses right like when i feel like something's uncomfortable i don't know if it is and uh and then i end up trusting other people and that's not safe right we can have a really tough time with that and so part of therapy is like learning to trust ourselves again slowly but surely and having a few key safe people that we can bounce ideas off of one of those people should be your therapist because they can help you better understand situations and that gut reaction you had and whether that is like a trauma response or whether there's a real threat we can start working through that um And I know that sounds really difficult and it is hard work, but it does get better. And the more we practice trusting ourselves and doing that thing and checking in and getting, you know, uh, it's a little, it's a weird, it's weird to say it this way, but it's like we go from not trusting ourselves at all to even a little bit. It can feel, it makes such a huge change in our life and it can help us feel better, just better in our decision-making process and better as an adult and, and safer, does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I know I'm kind of in the weeds on this, but that will help us feel more in control and take our life back from our abuser. Because the one thing I would encourage all of you not to do is do not allow them, unless there is a credible threat, like I think they have threatened to stab me or something and you don't want to, you know, where they live, don't be anywhere near where they would if you can. But I don't want us to avoid all sorts of places and make our world get really small because that's something that I know some like some evil people I'll just call them evil because I don't know diagnostically speaking they could be a sociopath you know have antisocial personality disorder or they could be a malignant narcissist but they thrive on that control over us where we don't do things because we're afraid of them getting you know getting to us and so our life is all about navigating where they'll allow us to be and I would encourage you not to give into that and to push back and you go wherever the fuck you want because that person doesn't deserve to take any more from us you know Um, and if necessary take any legal action that you can you know like I said whether it's a restraining order whether you file charges or whatever Um, yeah take your power back little by little but it has to kind of start from within so getting into therapy is is key Okay. Let's move on to question number six. It says, hi, Katie. Actually, let me get a little water here. It says, hi, Katie. I feel like my parents are influencing what my therapist thinks of me. What should I do? And what can I tell my therapist? For more background context, basically I called the suicide hotline. Earlier that day, my parents had told me that I would need to start doing less therapy because of money. I had just recently opened up to my therapist about feeling suicidal because it was getting pretty bad. So it wasn't a great time to stop. Basically, that just kind of sent me spiraling. I felt like everything was out of control and therapy is the only thing keeping me above ground. And now I'd rather give up because it seems, it just seems too difficult among other very negative thoughts about myself and my life. Anyways, later I found an email that my mom sent to my therapist where she pretty much said that I was angry and yelling at her and I was just calling the hotline because I was angry. I wasn't angry. I didn't yell and I don't know why she lied. I'm not feeling suicidal right now and I'm worried that I'll take my own life because I don't have support. I know that it was wrong to read my mom's emails and that's part of the reason I don't know what to do. Please help. Ooh, okay. This is part of the reason why I don't usually see minors, is because the parents can be the worst. And no judgment on parents out there, because some of you are trying your best and doing your best. But a lot of parents don't do that, and they're a bigger problem than my patients, and it's such a pain in the ass. So this pisses me off because your mom shouldn't be talking to your therapist behind your back, and I would bring that up directly to your therapist. And I know for a lot of people, you're like, "Oh, that feels confrontational. oh I don't like it." Ah, it's not confrontational. It's it's just asserting yourself. it's your therapy and your mom has no right to do that. And as a therapist, they don't shouldn't even be keeping that secret. So something that I, this is how I was taught in school and I believe every therapist should have this same stance and it's not like, oh, my stance is the best. I believe my teachers were the best when it comes to this. Now a rule of thumb when you deal with couples, families, or you know a minor child and you have their parents involved I always sit everybody down at the beginning and say I am not the secret keeper this is not a space for you to because what they'll what people try to do is they try to triangulate the therapist so they're going to pull the therapist into their already dysfunctional family system meaning they're going to want me to play the scapegoat role or the the person they tell everything to but they don't do anything with each other right they're going to tell me they're upset but they don't actually tell the person they're upset with got me? So they're pulling me into this relationship that's already unhealthy and I from the get tell them I don't do that. So if you call me out of session, if you text me out of session, if you email me out of session, if you ask me for anything, I'm going to bring it up with the group, meaning, you know, my patient, if it's the minor or the family or the couple, it's going to be brought up first thing at the next session, period. And that's the only way the therapist can be their best self, meaning the most benefit to their patient or patients. So in this case, your therapist should have told you and your mother should have emailed your mother right back and said, I am not the secret keeper. I will be letting your daughter or son or whoever know about this at our next session, unless you'd like to let them know first, which I would encourage you to do. That would be the response and i would have already nipped it in the bud early like i said by saying i'm not the secret keeper so don't tell me anything that you're not you know the, that you can't be the go between so you have every right in your next session to tell your therapist hey i know i broke my mom's confidence by reading your emails but i saw that she emailed you and i don't like that and that's not what happened and i don't know why she lied and i'm very upset about it and then you can even bring up be like hey i asked this therapist online Yeah, that's a thing. I know it's weird, but she does this thing. And I asked her and she told me that therapists shouldn't be the secret keeper. And what does that mean? You can ask her. She she should be able to tell you, you know, because that's not right. And it's not a good situation for your therapist to be in where she's in between you and your mom and your relationship and being pulled into the dysfunction of it. And so anyway, so that's my pushback there. That's not okay. And you have every right to be upset, but please bring it up with your therapist and give your therapist the chance to make it right. Because sometimes therapists just don't reply to emails and she maybe didn't even believe your mom and doesn't, you know, just does not respond to that. I don't know. But, you know, we need to make sure that you feel safe in therapy and you know that your therapist is on your side. That's a huge part of the therapeutic relationship is just feeling like our therapist is on our side and gets us. So there's that. And um, you can tell your therapist all that stuff. I would encourage you to pretty, pretty please, And then... um, And then, yeah, just letting your therapist know, I do want to address also the money issue and your parents saying that you needed to lower your number of sessions and you feel like you're going into crisis. So it's kind of like the opposite of things. Talk to your therapist about that and see if they have any, you know, a lot of therapists will work on a sliding scale or offer, you know, two sessions for the price of one or, you know, give you one free session a month. I mean, I've done all sorts of different versions of that with patients over the years. Everything from seeing a patient for, you know, like 40 bucks um, a session because that's all they could afford for a while or you know letting them have one free session this you know it just depends on what they need I've even seen patients for free when they've lost their jobs for a short period of time knowing that they'd come back on later you know we had an understanding this would go on for four weeks and then we would reassess so there's all sorts of things that therapists can do and there's no shame in asking for it we all keep room in our schedule for some kind of For lack of a better term, like a pro bono patient or sliding scale patients. Um, Because we get into what we do to help. So I hope that that helps. I hope that makes sense. Please speak up. That's not right. And I'm sorry that that happened. Some stuff just pisses me off. And that's one of those things that pisses me off. I'm mad at both your mom for sending that email and your therapist for not bringing it up with you or pushing back with your mom. But she may have. You don't know. So anyway, bring it up. Okay. Let's move into... Oh, also, because you said you were um, struggling with suicidal thoughts, there are suicide hotlines no matter where you are, but there also is the crisis text line at 741-741. You can just text, hello, howdy, hi, you know, I'm feeling bad, whatever. um, And they have some support there. If you're part of the LGBT plus community, the Trevor Project has people who can chat with you 24-7. That's another great resource. Um, Yeah, getting some extra support could be really helpful right now so please reach out and speak up if you're if you're having you know real thoughts of suicide and struggling and feeling like you may may attempt okay question number seven is it bad for me to want to show my therapist things that I'm proud of when I make art or music that turns out really well I want to show her I don't need to show her in order for me to be happy about it, but hearing her give me praise for my hard work is pleasant and it makes me feel good. Is seeking out positive reinforcement from my therapist in this way harmful? I love this question. It's not something we've talked about before. And the truth is in and of itself, no, it's not harmful at all. But because this is you know a therapist and this is therapy, let's get into the therapeutic side of it. Now, when something makes us feel good and we feel the urge to share with our therapist. Now I've had patients over the years, if I think about it, it's probably been a couple of years, maybe even three years now since I've heard from some of my patients now, these are past patients, but they used to email me periodically just to tell me how they were doing. Like, hey, I just wanted to reach out because I fin- I got this job or I finished school or I got married or I did this or that or I finally got my own apartment or any number of things. And I love it. And there's sometimes to be photos attached and it was super exciting. And that's great. And I love to get that. And I had told them they could keep in touch with me that way when we ended our sessions. And I mean it. And so there's nothing harmful in it. However, it is important that in therapy, we kind of figure out why this is. If there is anything there, there may not be. Sometimes I do want to throw out there that in therapy, a lot of times we want to dig into things and find out if there's like a hidden meaning. A lot of times there there is a hidden meaning, but a lot of times there isn't. So don't try to find something that's not there. We just need to be curious about it. It's okay to be curious, right? Not judgmental. So thinking about that, like you know, considering first, I guess, has anyone else in my life ever really been proud of me? Is that something that I've struggled with is um, not feeling like my parents or caregivers or family in general, really acknowledge things that I did, and and maybe even just told me they were proud. That can have a lasting effect on a child. And we can go out into the world as you know, we grow up looking for someone else to give us that. uh, Whether it's uh, understanding, love, support, But we we need to know that other people see us and recognize our successes. It's just part of human nature. There's no shame in that. We all need that kind of attention and affection. And so wanting someone to say, I'm proud of you, or you did a good job, or just any kind of acknowledgement and validation for what we're doing is important and we all need it. So thinking if you've received that from someone else in the past or not could be helpful in uncovering this. And then considering your relationship with your therapist and the attachment that you have with them. Like, what does it look like? And is it something that you've struggled with? And is fear of abandonment an issue that you've dealt with in the past? Or is it just like you feel like they're part of your team and your family and you just want them to be a part of it and you want them to know? Think about it. Be curious about it. Not judgmental, just curious, right? And so I think that Again, praise is something we all need, but we just want to make sure it's coming from a healthy place for us and we're not trying to like fill that void from maybe a shitty parent or emotionally unavailable mom or dad or whatever with our therapist. We want to make sure that, that we are okay on our own and this is just extra. And because there's nothing wrong, again, there's nothing wrong with wanting and needing praise. It's part of the human condition. We just have to figure out where it's coming from so that we make sure it's not like we're not perpetuating a past issue or upset. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Okay. Moving on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. Many times I think when I get fully better, I'll start my quote unquote real life. Oh my God, I've heard that so many times from my patients. I'll maybe go back to school, start dating, etc. But why can't I do it now? You can. How does one learn to manage one, one's life while their mental health is still a work in progress? I'm in between or in between therapy and all I hope this is clear and somebody else left a comment below said legit and how are so many people able to manage when I can't I see people in online groups who are able to date and have significant others and it's like how how are you managing this please teach me your ways I loved your guys's comments on this it kind of cracked me up because it can feel that way right because we're all so different. And first of all, there is nothing wrong with waiting to date or make big changes in our life until we feel better. Everyone's level of resilience. Remember back at the first question, I talked about how resilience is our ability to weather life storms and be okay. Everyone's level of, blah, blah, sorry, that was hard to say. Everyone's level of resilience is going to be different. So some people have this huge fucking stockpile that they're pulling out of, and they're able to maintain other relationships while working through their ish. Or some people are able to compartmentalize better than others. That's again, part of that resilience. We're able to put that work in a bubble. Oh, I can be really successful at work while my home life is like in shambles, but that's okay. I can do that. I can manage, right? Everyone is different. Looking out at someone else's experience and then comparing that to ourselves is never going to help us feel better and it's never going to be a healthy thing I know I know it's so hard not to do but I just want you to know that it's it's never beneficial for us to compare ourselves to other people one of my favorite quotes from um, and I forget who it is but it's comparison is the thief of joy just think about that because it really is Any of the strides that you're making in your life, any of the tools that you've used or the boundaries you've set, the self-care that you have taken the time to put in place is being lost on this because we're looking out at other people thinking, you know, maybe I should be doing that. You know, why can't I do as well as they are doing or whatever? So just consider that. And then the, the main question about like, well, why can't I do it now? You can do it now. It's all up to what feels okay for you. We don't need to wait until we're fully better to start a life or to date or to do whatever. I do... I know I've talked about this in the past, when it comes to dating, I believe that we should be putting effort into ourselves and being cautious in relationships. Because if we're not cautious, sometimes if we come from like, let's say abuses in our background, we can find ourselves in another abusive relationship because there's just something about that person that's so attractive. I don't know why it's like a tractor beam. It's because it's something we're comfortable with, something we're used to. And sometimes those two things aren't healthy for us. And I know that's hard, but I've had plenty of patients get into serious relationships with alcoholics when their father was an alcoholic or their mother was an alcoholic or again the abusive relationships or it could just be some of that dysfunction where it's like oh I always hated the way that my mom spoke to my dad or vice versa or whatever right my parents the way they talked to each other but then I found myself in the exact same relationship. For better for worse when we grow up in a certain situation it becomes very normal and we seek out normalcy and comfort there's some kind of uh, to that right we for some reason could feel like a tractor beam like it's just so attractive and we don't know why um that's why and so just being cautious and cognizant of that is key but there's nothing wrong with dating as long as we're working on ourselves and holding ourselves responsible to our own actions that's it that's it. So there's no need to wait until you're fully better. Also, what is the definition of fully better? I would be curious about that. Um, and you can start, you know, you can start your life now. There's no no need waiting. Life's already too short, right? And it says, how does one learn to manage, uh, you know, your life while their mental health is still a work in progress? Again, it's that resiliency. It's those resources. It's feeling like you have the coping skills that you need to get you through. But it's okay if you don't. It's okay if you already feel overwhelmed. Again, everyone is going to be different. And so I really feel like talk to your therapist about it. Maybe take a small step towards something. Like maybe take one class. Get yourself going with some of your resources, some of your tools. Then let's maybe for fall or, well, I'm like, what what is it now? It's It's March. (laughs) or it's February. So it's February, very end of February, almost beginning of March. So if we are wanting to start school, maybe we try to take one class in the summer. Now that gives us time to prepare. That gives us time to get ready for it and then see how it goes. Knowing that we can always withdraw, we can always, you know, add another class if it's too easy, but we can just tiptoe into it and start and try and then see how we do. Um, but again, we're going to need those tools and resources to keep us afloat because we need that resilience to keep us from losing it and feeling like we're sliding back into our old unhealthy mental health ways. Um, but we're all works in, pro- in progress. So just be a little kind and compassionate to yourself and patient as we figure this all out. Okay. But you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. But if you'd rather, again, no judgment to each their own. Everybody's different. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. I'm not actively suicidal right now. And I can recognize that there are reasons to hold on. However, when I am feeling suicidal, I can't see any of those things. I know. Isn't suicide like suicidal thoughts or just depression in general It's kind of like this like fog slash it like turns out the lights. And it makes it hard for us to see anything, anything positive, any hope, any uh, tools to use, any resources, any people, anything like that. Just snuffs it all out. It's the worst. Okay. I'm scared that I will hurt myself in the future, even though I can see a reason to live now. I'm going to the hospital or calling a hotline doesn't really seem to apply here because I'm not in crisis right now. What should I do? Now, I'm going to have a video coming out. And I talked about this in a previous podcast about what is a crisis Um, And it sounds like you are actually in a crisis, Um, but I will talk about that in a video. And again, I talked about it in a previous podcast. I want to say it was like uh, three episodes ago, maybe. Um, And I think someone left in the comments below this which episode it was. So thank you to that wonderful community member. Okay, so I have a video that I want you to check out. And it's called Suicide Safety Plan. And I think if you just go onto YouTube and put in Katie Morton Safety Plan or Katie Morton Suicide Safety Plan, it will pop up and I walk you through how to put one of these together. Now, in I know I go into more detail there, but roughly what a suicide safety plan is, is a plan that we put in place when we're not actively suicidal, meaning I'm going to do it when I feel mm, okay, right? You don't have to wait till you feel great, but we don't want to do it when we're in a crisis because Like you said, I can't see any of those things. It doesn't work for me. So we take that information that some things I can't see and it's not going to work. So what tools and things can we put in place to help us? Okay. So if we find ourselves having suicidal thoughts, uh, is it an impulse log that we want to do? Do we want to journal? Is it good if we go for a walk? Do we call a friend? These are things you're going to write down. I want you to have at least... I like to have three to five things you can do during the day and three to five things you can do during the night because we know... Sometimes nighttime is the worst time. It's not the right time. It's the worst time. And it makes us, our our suicidal thoughts can get worse, right, at that time. So we want to make sure that we have things in place that we can do no matter what time it is. And maybe we put the suicide hotline down or the crisis text line, and there's nothing wrong with talking to someone when we're just having a bad day. They're there to support, okay? We don't have to be actively suicidal in order to warrant us reaching out. So there's those things. And then, you know, um, having people you can call and text is very important. And then, honestly, one of the last resources should be, well, I guess before that should be like reaching out to your therapist and letting them know, doing those check-ins. And the last resource would be, you know, taking yourself to the hospital or calling calling 911 or whatever emergency services you have and, and taking yourself in. Um, you can actually even just drive yourself to the hospital if you feel it's safe and check yourself in and say, I'm really struggling with suicidal thoughts and I just need to be on a watch here for a while. Now. I don't really like hospitals, they're, they're, they keep us safe, but they can also not be that therapeutic. So I just want to throw that out there that it's, it's not always ideal, but it's there if we need it. And I would encourage you to use it if you need it. Um, It gives us that little safe haven for a bit. Honestly, for some of my patients over the years, They've had bad experiences, but some have had great experiences and, and are really thankful. And it's helped them not only feel better and be safe for those few days, but also get their medication straightened out. Some One of my patients was having withdrawal symptoms and their psychiatrist wasn't really on the ball as much as I would have liked her to be. And so, you know, uh, going into the hospital was actually helpful in that way. So you just don't know. But those, those are my thoughts about it creating that suicide safety plan is going to be key. I have a bunch of videos about suicide. If you just want to look up Katie Morton suicide, they should all come up. Um, Yeah, put that plan together. Try some things out when you're not feeling bad. And if those coping skills don't feel good, ditch them. Find another one. Remember I was talking earlier about that video. I have uh, 25 coping skills. Look that one up. That could give you a place to start too. And some other things you can pop into your safety plan to help you be more prepared. But I'm sorry you're feeling so bad. know that you're not alone. Suicide, those thoughts, those really deep, dark thoughts tend to snuff out any positive things. And so having someone in our life who's at least aware that can remind us of the good things can be beneficial too, and maybe write that in your safety plan. But safety plans are key. Doing them when we're not actively having a tough time is also key. And letting your therapist know about it is important too. So doing all of those things, I, I really encourage you, like do it today, don't wait because it'll only it's always best that we prepare we hope for the best right prepare for the worst but hope for the best and so we need to prepare so preparing ahead of time will help make sure that you are safe and that you won't hurt yourself because nobody wants that right you're important we see you we want you here don't let those thoughts tell you otherwise okay Let's move on to our final question. Question number 10 says, how does one deal with what feels like a block to making progress in certain areas? I've been working with a therapist on these issues, but I just can't seem to get past them. Things like getting an adequate amount of sleep, for example. I know all the things I should do to help, but I just can't make myself do them. Any suggestions? Yes, I have a lot of suggestions. So number one, when we have a block to making progress in certain areas, I'm always more curious about why we're having a tough time rather than getting us to do that thing. I know, you're like, Katie, that doesn't help me make any progress. And then I'm back where I started. No, there's something in the way. And instead of just trying to bulldoze our way through it, what if we creatively try to figure out, is there another way around it? Maybe our block has more to do with the way our therapist asked than the actual thing or maybe what doing this thing reminds us of is some abuse in our past or some pain that we haven't fully processed maybe that's it maybe our resilience is so low that we can't do anything right now we're so exhausted so we need to build that up first maybe that's it Being a little bit curious about it instead of judging ourselves, like, oh, I'm not making any progress. I'm so stupid. This is so worthless. I'm not using this time properly. My therapist probably hates me. Like all those, you know, automatic negative thoughts that we have, instead of allowing that to take place, let's just be curious about it. What are those certain areas? Why is it that those are so difficult? What is it that pops into your head when you consider doing the thing or working on an issue? What is it that like stops you in your tracks? Hmm let's be curious about that. Be a detective, right? Find the evidence and like getting an amount. Okay. So that's the main core to it. Cause then it says things like getting an adequate amount of sleep, for example, like I know all the things I should do to help, but I just can't make myself do any of them. Okay. Let's break things down into smaller bits. Like for instance, instead of feeling like, Oh, I need to go to sleep early. I need to get at least X number of hours. It's it's very black and white. It's very in and out, all nothing. Instead, I want you to say, hey, could I go to bed like 10 minutes earlier? 10 minutes isn't that much. Or when I think about it, maybe I could get ready for bed just a little bit earlier and lay in bed and know that I don't have to try to fall asleep really quick. But I should like, I want to try to get into bed a little early, right? Make them smaller. Make your goals smaller. It shouldn't be get enough sleep. It should be like consider going to bed a little bit earlier and see how that feels. And let me just try it two days this week. See what happens, right? Making it a little bit more flexible. I also really love um, to done lists. I talked about this years ago with Hannah Hart on my channel that was like, I don't even know, eons ago, feels like four years ago maybe five um, where to done list can help you feel really motivated these are things like I got up I showered I ate I drank water um, I called a friend I saw my therapist it can be any number of things that we know we're going to do that day write those things down put a little box and then when you've done them check them off or when you start your day and you finally get to where you're getting to maybe it's your living room maybe it's the office you can be like I got up check write it down check it off I ate breakfast. Check. You can write it down and check it off. I got dressed. All these things. Write down things that you've done because instead we keep focusing on the things that we haven't gotten done. Let's try to shift that into the things that we have gotten done. And then another small thing about making progress is like making sure again that there are small tangible goals that you can accomplish in a day and then something you can accomplish in a week, right? Different sizes of goals. And and making sure that your these lists of things that you're working on aren't longer than seven things. Now I know you're like Katie, it's like one thing in therapy, but as we break this down into smaller steps, you're going to find that that one thing actually is maybe like 20 steps or 10 steps. So, just make sure that you're not setting yourself up for failure, being like, Well, I should be able to do all of those these week. No, no, no. Let's break it down into maybe like three things this week and see how we do, right? Again, making it just more manageable because the thing that we do know is as you're able to check things off of those lists you feel more motivated and are more likely I forget the percentage but it was a huge increase you're more likely to go back the next day and do it again that's why that all or nothing black and white thinking mentality just never works for us it's kind of the reason that diets don't work also I hate diets and they're not very healthy for you but um, that all or nothing in and out judgmental way doesn't really lead us to feeling better but if we take our time Small and manageable steps. We're curious about why this roadblock is here. Cause a lot of my therapy process with my patients is just talking about why they can't talk about things. Like figuring that out. Why is that so triggering? You know, we're trying to dig into the reasons behind it because there is a reason. You're not making it up. It's hard for a reason. We just had to figure out what that reason is. And and being curious, not judgmental about it will will go a long way. And then we can, you know, have these little uh, small more achievable goals and we can feel more, more blah, blah, blah. almost it was just a blah, blah 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 sometimes you guys my lips just don't keep up with my mouth or my brain jesus katie but what i was going to say is if we break them into those more small achievable steps keeps us motivated keeps us feeling our best so that we can continue working towards a healthy mind and a healthy body remember when I used to finish all the videos that way those were the good old days that was fun I was talking to somebody the other day about um Missing, like, are you now live streams? How we used to do those, it's just there's so much to do all the time. It feels like it's hard to make time to live stream. Like, I think I was doing what I don't know, you guys, like three, five days a week oh, a ton. It felt like a lot. I don't even know, two days a week, something. Um, but I am going to in the future, Sean and I are actually just right now trying to figure out better ways to manage our time so that we can do some of those things more regularly. Like maybe it's like a monthly live stream on YouTube. I know I do them on Patreon and that's what I've been putting my effort behind. Um, but I know that a lot of you can't afford Patreon and I understand that. And so trying to find ways to maximize, uh, my time so that I can offer more things. And I have been trying to do like more TikToks and all that good stuff, but, um, But yeah, trying to do all that and trying to think about it. So stay tuned for that. Make sure your notifications are turned on so that you know when I do go live. But I'll usually let you guys know ahead of time. And I have a feeling we'll make that shift here in the next like month or so. So bear with me as we figure it out. But thank you for sending in all of your wonderful questions as per usual. Very on point, very helpful you all are the best. I also love to read your comments as you talk back and forth to one another, offering your own insights. So great. You guys are the best. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And again, if you're um, not again, first time for this episode, sorry, I didn't say it earlier. If you're new, welcome. Um, Please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts where you can review them. Also, if you're wondering where I get the questions, I ask them on Mondays on my, uh, the Opinions That Don't Matter podcast, or or it's a YouTube channel, but it's where my podcasts live. If you're already watching this on YouTube, you're already there. You just have to go back into the channel that this came from. Go to the community tab on Mondays. I ask for your questions. Now I forgot this week I was a little bit late, but I'm going to schedule a few of them so that I don't forget because sometimes I forget. Um, So we should be back on board with that. Yes. So that's where I pull them. I pull the ones with the most thumbs ups. I do my best to find those ones. Sometimes I can't find them all. And I'm sorry if I missed yours. Feel free to ask it again. Um, but yeah, have a wonderful week, you guys. I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Kate.